Hey, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Genesis, and I am glad to be with you this morning. For those who are joining online, welcome. We're so glad you're joining us. I want to give a shout out to my wife and my kids. Uh, they are joining us from home. I love you all. Uh, thanks for all of your support and your encouragement to me. Uh, I'm excited about our message today. I'll start by telling you, uh, asking you a question. Has anybody seen uh, the show on the History Channel called Alone? Has anybody seen Alone on the History Channel? Anybody? Okay, one or two. All right. All right. Well, let me give you a little bit of the premise. I've watched a few of these episodes. I actually watched the entire first season this past week. And here's the premise of uh, Alone. They take 10 contestants and they drop them off in some remote wilderness and the goal is for them to survive as long as they can before tapping out and calling to come be rescued. Now, there are three big kickers. First, they can only take a handful of supplies, basically what can fit in a backpack. Second, they drop all 10 of the contestants off in different locations throughout the wilderness so they never actually run into one another, which means they are alone in the wilderness. They're totally isolated. No humans, there's no film crew. They actually film themselves. The third thing is this, the places they take these people are extremely harsh and dangerous places with unfriendly conditions. It's a fascinating show, but one of the themes that is very clear and the primary challenge that each of the contestants face throughout the show is having to endure suffering alone. Every contestant, in their own way, in their own words, at various times, describes the painful, the brutally, the brutally painful experience of trying to survive the wilderness and endure the suffering alone. And the show is popular, I think, because in some way it gives us a vivid and maybe an exaggerated picture of the suffering in our life. And it's something I think we can all relate to. We've all had to or will have to endure a wilderness season of suffering. And so the point of today's message, the question I want us to ask is this. How do we have real hope that helps us endure in the face of suffering, especially when we struggle to sense God's presence in the midst of it? We're going to see that God wants to help us, wants to give us a hope that helps us endure and even a hope that helps us praise Him in the midst of it. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 42. If you have your Bible, you want to pull up to Psalm 42. Uh, we're going to get to that in just a second. Many of you know that we as a church family have been reading through the Bible this year. We're calling this journey Planted in Psalm chapter 1. The psalmist writes that he, or we see, or we learn that God wants his sons and daughters to be like trees planted by streams of water. And we can do that by meditating and delighting in God's word. And so if you're following along with our planted reading plan, then you've been likely reading about Moses and the Israelites and their story in the Old Testament. We've also been reading through some of the Psalms. Well, today we're going to zero in and study Psalm 42. You likely read this sometime uh, a little over a week ago. I'm going to start by simply reading through the whole Psalm together. It's 11 verses, and so I'm going to read through Psalm 42, starting in verse 1. You can follow along in your own Bible, or you can follow along while we'll have the Scripture on the screen. As the deer pants for streams of water... My soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. Why people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. 
how I used to go down to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of, the Herman, of Hermon, and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, before we dive into this psalm, let's pray together. Would you pray with me? Father, I am so thankful that you love us, that you take good care of us, and that you have good plans for us. And I trust that you want to encourage us and comfort us and speak to us today. Thank you for what you're doing in our church family. Thank you for those who are gathered here in the room. Thank you for those who are joining us online. Father, we just ask that you would accomplish your purposes in your word and through your word here in the next few minutes. God, we want to hear from you. If we need encouragement, encourage us. If we need comfort, comfort us. If, you need, if we need direction, give us direction. Father, I just ask that you'd open our eyes and our ears. Help us to experience your presence here today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Psalm 42. So most scholars believe that King David likely prayed and wrote this psalm. Some uh, scholars uh, think that, well, we can't be so sure, but um, we're going to assume it's David. It sounds a whole lot like David's other psalms. And uh, this psalm, this prayer, clearly reveals a man of faith who is suffering. We don't know for sure what has caused his suffering, but in the midst of his suffering, he can't seem to sense God's presence. He feels like he's enduring the suffering alone and without God. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a season where you were just desperate for God to show up in your life? A season in your life when you just couldn't sense God's presence? And maybe you're in that place right now. Let's walk through David's prayer and let's make some observations and see what the Lord has for us. Let's start in verse 1 and 2. David writes, he opens his prayer up, As the deer pants for streams of water... So my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Now David begins his prayer by trying to describe what's happening in his heart and soul. He's very reflective. He, he's contemplating, he's considering what's going on in his inner man. He says, my soul is in need. It's dry. It's thirsty. It's like a deer panting for water. I googled uh, Psalm 42 this week. If you do this, some images are going to pop up. Uh, the images were of a deer uh, by a body of water, and they're serene images. They paint a picture of peace and calm and tranquility. But that's not what the image of David had in mind when he praised this prayer. And just to be clear, David wasn't referring to a North American deer. He was probably referring to what is called an ibex. An ibex is an animal similar to a deer that lives in Israel in the Middle East. But the image that David has is that of an animal that is desperately searching for water and is literally dying of thirst unless it finds water. It needs to survive. 
It needs to find water to survive. And that's where David's at. He says, my soul thirsts for God. When can I go and meet with God? Now, some translations take that phrase, meet with God, and they translate it, appear before God. And it can literally mean, see the face of God. So David is crying out, and he's desperately searching for a sense of God's presence in his life. You know this is true. When you're in a season of pain and suffering, when life hurts, isn't the one thing you long for more than anything is a sense of God's loving care and presence in your life? Because when you're suffering, it's so tempting to believe that God has somehow left you or he stopped blessing you or he isn't with you anymore. And one of the more challenging aspects of the Christian life is to be holding suffering in one hand and still holding on to God's love and his presence in the other. Look what David says in verse three. My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? Do you see the contrast? David says, I'm desperately thirsting for God's presence in my life, but the only thing I have to drink are my tears. Oftentimes when we're suffering, the only thing you can see are your tears. Whatever it is that's causing the suffering in your life seems much larger and powerful than God's presence. And that's why the question, where is your God, is a common question people ask in the midst of suffering. I mean, one of the major objections non-Christians have to Christianity is, if God is good, why does he allow suffering? But there's a false underlying assumption behind that question. The false assumption is this, that the presence of suffering equals the absence of God. Let me say it again. The false assumption is that the presence of suffering must equal or mean that God is absent. Church family, that is not true. It's just not true. But when you're the one suffering, it sure seems to be the big question you wrestle with. Look what David says in verse 9 and 10. He says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Do you see David? Do you feel David wrestling with this tension? On one hand, David addresses God as God is my rock. But in the same sentence, he says, why have you forgotten me? He declares both his faith in God and his doubt in the same sentence. Listen, if you lose a sense of God's presence in your life, it can be incredibly discouraging and disheartening. It, it can be devastating to your heart and soul. And that discouragement can to lead to despair and, and, and a loss of hope. And when you're a Christian, you think, I have faith in God. Why am I so discouraged? And we have to learn to hold suffering in one hand without losing our grip of hope in the other hand. That's where David is. Look at verse 5. He says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are so disturbed within me? He says the same thing again a few verses later in verse 11. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Now, the NIV uses the words uh, downcast and disturbed. But other translations use words like despair and restless, dejected and disquieted. Another uses the word turmoil. Listen to these terms. Downcast, disturbed, despair, dejected, disquieted, restless, turmoil. Do you get the point? David's not in a good place. Let me ask you, do any of those words kind of describe where you are right now? You know, we all experience suffering at different times in our lives, 
and in different ways. When you think of suffering, you, you probably think about major things, big things, things like a terminal illness such as cancer, uh, maybe chronic physical pain, someone who battles a lifelong affliction or addiction of some kind. There's the suffering that, that comes as a result of abuse or neglect. There's the suffering that comes with the death of a loved one. There's financial suffering, the loss of a job, losing your home, facing bankruptcy. There's relational suffering, a fractured relationship between a parent and a child, the divorce of a husband and a wife, or maybe just the rejection from a friend or a loved one. And then there's suffering that comes from unfulfilled dreams and plans, unmet expectations. Things aren't unfolding and going the way you want them to go, want them to go. Those are kind of the bigger things we tend to think about when we think about pain and suffering. But I, Paul Miller, I like what Paul Miller says in his book, J-Curve, and he talks about suffering. He says, we often discount and ignore the low-level suffering that each of us experiences every day. Low-level suffering are things like real tension and stress in your otherwise very good marriage. Low-level suffering is being a parent who longs to love your children well, but you know your weaknesses and your immaturity is actually hurting your kids, and it hurts you. Low-level suffering is experiencing conflict, conflict with your friends or conflict with family members or conflict with co-workers, conflict as a result of their sin or as a result of your own sin. Low-level suffering is the anxiety and fear you feel as you struggle to manage all of life's responsibilities every single day. So major suffering can come to us in seasons, but the Bible tells us that suffering is a normal part of everyday life because we're living in a fallen and broken world. We're sinful, broken people living in a broken world. And suffering can be devastating and it can be disorienting and we can lose sight of God in the midst of it and we end up in despair and without hope. Let's go back to David though. Something interesting happens in his prayer. He tries to avoid despair and he does so by kind of reordering his hopes. Look at verse five again. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And then here's where he starts to kind of preach to himself. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He says it again in verse 11. Why are you so downcast? Why are you disturbed? Put your hope in God. David's preaching to himself. He's taking his thoughts captive. He tells his heart and soul what to do. Put your hope in God. Now, what is hope? Let's briefly define it. Hope is looking forward to, it's anticipating, it's waiting with a confident expectation of some future good. And hope and waiting are, are closely connected, right? If you're hoping for something, it means you're waiting for something. If you're waiting for something, it means you're hoping for something. And so when David preaches to himself, put your hope in God, my Savior, he's saying, I will look forward to and wait on God with a confident expectation that in the future, God is going to bring about good to me. God is going to come to my rescue. He's going to save me. One of my favorite illustrations of hope happened when I was a senior in high school. I had a friend of mine who went with his parents to visit a university that he was thinking about attending. We'll call him Aaron to protect his identity. And so Aaron and his mom and his dad, they go and make this uh, college visit. And when the visit was over, uh, they load up the car and they drive back 
home. Well, about halfway home, Aaron's parents stop at the gas station, rest stop, and it's at that point when they realize Aaron's not in the car. <laughs> they had left him at the university accidentally. They had driven over an hour before they ever realized that he wasn't in the back seat. <laughs> and so they had to turn around and drive back. I don't know what this says about their relationship, but you have to remember, uh, uh, and you have to remember, I was, uh, just turned 44, and so this was back in the 1995, the spring of 1995. And back then, seniors in high school, high school kids, we didn't have cell phones, right? And so they had to turn around and they had to go back and get him. Now, I want you to imagine how Aaron must have felt waiting for his parents to come back and pick him up. As he waited for his parents, he was placing his hope in them, right? He had a confident expectation, albeit a very diminished confidence. He had a confident expectation that his parents would come to rescue him. Even though he didn't have a text message to see that they were coming, he had hope that they would ultimately, they, would, they wouldn't leave him abandoned and alone. And we've all experienced this, right? We've all been waiting for someone, our parents specifically, to come pick us up. And even though in that moment you're alone and your parents aren't with you, you trust that you're on your parents' mind, that you're part of your parents' plan, you're part of their heart, that they love you and they care about you. And even though you're physically apart for a time, you know that they'll ultimately not abandon you or leave you alone. That's what putting your hope in God looks like. When David is putting his hope in God, he's saying, God, in the midst of my suffering, I can't sense your presence right now, but I'm choosing to wait on you with a confident expectation that you're going to come, that you're going to come and you're going to bring good and you're going to save me. And it's that hope in God that helps David endure the suffering. Now, it's at this point in the message where we could say, hey, if you're going through suffering right now, you too can pray this prayer that David prayed. You can take this prayer and make it your own, and you can put your hope in God. And that's true. You can make this prayer your own. The Psalms, in large part, are designed to be prayer guides for us, if you will. But for the rest of our time together, I want to ask this question. How do we view this psalm? How do we view this prayer through the lens of the New Testament? As I'm convinced, you have to view everything in the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament or through the lens of the, cross, uh, of the gospel? How does the cross and the gospel of Jesus influence the way we pray this prayer and the way we put our hope in God? Well, just for a minute, let's start by reviewing the gospel. The gospel story is that God created the heavens and the earth, and he created you and me. You are not a random accident. God designed the world to be a place of love and joy and peace, a place where we would have a loving relationship with him and with one another. But we sinned. And sin is anytime you turn away from God and go your own independent way. And when we sin, we separate ourselves from God. Our relationship with God was fractured and we were cut off from our source of life. And that fractured, that fractured relationship leads to brokenness and death, both here in this life and for all eternity in what Jesus describes as hell. And that's bad news. But the good news, the good news is that God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to rescue us. And see, Jesus lived a sinless life. He never turned away from God. He never went his own independent way. He always obeyed his father and he obeyed him all the way to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus took our place. He took our punishment. He took our suffering. 
And it was on the cross where Jesus said, Tetelestai paid in full. He paid for your sins and mine. He paid a debt we could never pay. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. And by doing so, he gained victory over sin and death. And the Bible says that if you repent and believe, if you turn back to God, if you put your faith and your hope in Christ, you can be reconciled to God. That relationship is restored. You can be adopted back into God's family and welcomed home as a son or a daughter. Here's how Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 summarizes it. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, since the believer, the Christian, has been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We are justified by faith, and we have peace with God through what Jesus accomplished with his life, his death, and his resurrection. And now we have access to God by grace through faith. Now, how does our faith in Christ help us endure suffering today? Well, we're going to turn to Romans and the Apostle Paul. We're going to look at a big chunk of Scripture here in the next few minutes, so stay with me, okay? I'm going to let the Apostle Paul and the Spirit of God and the Word of God answer this question for us. Let's start in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Paul writes, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. Wait, what? Paul says, we, we Christians, when we run into problems and trials, we can, uh, go back to the one, we can, uh, re, we can rejoice. He says, we can rejoice. Wait a minute, how? How do we rejoice in problems and trials? See, this is where the gospel begins to help us endure in the midst of the suffering. This is where the gospel takes our thinking about suffering and turns it totally upside down on itself. So we often see our problems and trials as something to avoid. We see our problems and our trials and our suffering as something to escape and get out of as soon as possible. But the gospel says this, that the gospel says that suffering is part of God's plan for our lives. That if we will embrace suffering, God can use it to accomplish his purpose. What's his, what's his purpose? He says, if we embrace, we, we run into, when we run into our problems and trials, we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with, with his love. Did you catch that? Paul says this, suffering can actually strengthen our hope in Christ. How does that happen? God, how does God take, God takes our suffering, both major suffering and low-level suffering, and he actually wants to use it to strengthen us and to grow our hope in Christ. Well, let's keep going. Let's jump a few chapters to, uh, to Romans 8, verse 17. Here's what he says. And since we are his children, since we are God's adopted children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Here's what that means. God wants to take suffering in your life, and he wants to use it to accomplish his plans in your life just the same way he took suffering in Jesus' life and used it to accomplish his plans. Suffering in the hands of God is a tool to accomplish his purposes. Look what he says. We must share in his suffering, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Now we're getting at it. Now, Paul has taken the gospel and he's completely transforming our view of suffering. He's saying, listen, here's how you view suffering. You view suffering now through the lens of the glory that God is going to reveal in the future. 
See, as believers, oh, let me keep going. The gospel reorders our hopes. Here's what he says. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subject, subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Where is our hope? Look at this. Where is our eager hope? Our hope is in the day when we will join God's children in glorious freedom. Keep going. Paul writes, Next verse. As believers, we groan. Where is it at? Here we go. And we believers, we also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Here's what he's saying. Even though you're suffering right now, you've been given the Holy Spirit, but even though you have the Holy Spirit, you're still going to experience suffering. And we're longing, just as David thirsted for God's presence, we have a longing too. But our longing, our longing is, a, is for our future glory. Our longing is for the ultimate release of sin and suffering. That's what our hope is in. He says, we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children. He, here's the thing, including the new bodies in, 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 in he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. Here's what happens. The moment you put your faith and trust in Christ, you're given a new hope. But the hope isn't for this life. See, we have to reorder our hopes. If, if this represents our hope, we have this box represents my hope. When you become a Christian, you realize my hope cannot be placed anywhere in this world. And so you may face suffering. You will, you and I will face suffering in this life. And God will strengthen you and he promises that he is with you, that you are not alone, that you have the Holy Spirit and he will guide you and take care of you through the suffering. But nowhere in the scripture... Nowhere in the New Testament are you promised that God will take your suffering in this life away. Nowhere. Here's what he says. He says, take your hope, lift it up out of this world and out of this life and put your hope in the next. When you put your hope in Christ, you put it in the future plans of what Christ is doing. You put it up in heaven. You put it up in eternity. You put it up in the throne of God. You put it up in his promise that he's going to come and he's going to return and he's going to make all things new. See, as believers on this side of the cross, because of Jesus, because of the New Testament, we don't have to doubt or wonder or question God's presence in our lives. We have the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. We don't have to try to sense God's presence. We can live a word-centered faith, and God's word says that he's with us, and so we can believe that and have faith in that and find encouragement and support with that. But even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, we groan because we long to be released and rescued from the ultimate sin and suffering. We want help in this life, in the suffering in this life, but we're not looking forward to ultimate relief here. We're looking for the ultimate relief that's going to come when Jesus returns. And so as believers, we can endure suffering in this life because we are promised we're not alone and we wait patiently and with eager hope for the day when we'll get our full rights as his, his adopted children. And so this is what the Apostle Paul and the Spirit of God says about the believer, we, how we have hope to endure in this life. So just a few practical things here. Number one, it's okay not to be okay. David shows us that. Some of you are beating yourselves up over your frustration and your discouragement about your discouragement. But King David's words remind us, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to pour out your heart to God. It's okay to be brutally honest with him. 
And maybe that's something you need to do in the midst of your suffering. You actually need to be honest and tell God. Secondly, you can get planted in God's word. Develop a word-centered faith. Don't develop a faith that is circumstance-based. Develop a faith that is word-centered based on what God's word says. David kept going back to the word of God over and over again. He kept hanging on to the word of God while he was hanging on to his suffering. Number three, don't go through the wilderness alone. You don't have to go through seasons of suffering alone. That's why God has provided the church. That's why we have each other. That's why we encourage you to get involved in a group, get involved in, in some way in this church. Men, women, develop a few relationships with other men and other women. If you don't have those relationships, the first thing you can do is just pray. Say, God, bring me a few guys who can help me, who can come alongside me. Bring me a few ladies who can come alongside me in this life. So it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to pour out your heart to God. Get planted in God's word. Don't go through the wilderness alone. But ultimately, the only answer to endure suffering in this life is to put your hope in Jesus. Here's how I summarize what Paul wrote in Romans. We wait with eager hope for Jesus. We wait with eager hope for Jesus. Anything else you put your hope in in this life will inevitably let you down. If you put your hope in finances, they'll let you down. If you put your hope in relationships, they'll let you down. You put your hope in your dreams, your plans, it'll let you down. Don't put your hope in anything in this world. Pick up your hope and put it in Christ, in his plans for us, his eternal plans. Because in the New Testament, on this side of the cross, hope has a name and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the better David. Go back to Psalm 42. Jesus fulfills Psalm 42 for us. Jesus prayed with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him. Jesus poured out his heart before God. It was in the garden where he suffered greatly and he cried out, take this cup of suffering from me, yet not my will, your will be done. In doing so, Jesus showed us it's appropriate to ask boldly for God to remove your suffering. Ask God, say, God, take this suffering from my life but follow Jesus' pattern all the way and say, but not my will, your will be done. I trust you with my life. On the cross, Jesus was mocked, was mocked. On the cross, they taunted Jesus and they said, where is your God? And get this, here's what the gospel does for you. Here's how the gospel helps you to grasp God's love for you and helps you endure. When you see Jesus fully absorbing that question, where is your God? And you understand that he absorbed that question so you never have to entertain that question. It was on the cross where Jesus cried out, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus was left alone to suffer on the cross so that you and I never have to suffer alone. That's the good news. Our suffering is only a temporary suffering and it won't compare to the glory that awaits us in heaven when Jesus returns. See, Jesus endured the suffering and he, he, he won the ultimate victory. And he turns to you and to me and he shares his victory with us. And so we wait for, with eager hope for his return, for the new heavens and the new earth, when he'll wipe away every tear and there'll be no more crying or no more pain. And in the meantime, we praise him. We praise him for the hope that we have, for the hope that awaits us. Some older friends of mine, uh, some older friends of my wife and I's, recently had an adult child uh, of theirs go through a, uh, a divorce. It was a very painful 
and publicly embarrassing divorce. When my wife asked how they were doing, the mom said, I never imagined walking my child through a divorce. And then she said, so I've just had to worship my way through it. I'm worshiping worshiping my way through it. See, as Christians, because of our hope in Christ, that's what we do in the face of suffering in this life. We worship Jesus all the way through it. And we're going to end today by worshiping with communion. We're going to take communion today. Joel and the band are going to come out. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, here's what Jesus said. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see this? Jesus was instructing his disciples and he's instructing you and I that when we take communion, what are we doing? We are proclaiming, we are worshiping, we're putting our faith in what? In him when? When he comes. See, when you take communion, when we take communion, we are saying our hope is not in this life. Our hope is not in ultimate relief from suffering here. Our hope is that Jesus is going to come back. And we're going to spend eternity with him where he removes suffering and sin forever. If this is your first time taking communion with us, you'll see the cracker on top and the juice on the bottom. You can go ahead and peel that top piece back. We'll get the cracker in hand together. We're going to take communion together. get that cracker in hand. I'm going to pray for us and give you a moment to take and eat the bread. Let me pray for us. Father, as we eat this bread together, we remember that you loved us so much that you sent your one and only son, that Jesus left heaven, became flesh, and dwelt among us. Jesus, you lived the life we failed to live and you died the death we deserve to die. Thank you, Jesus. Let's eat the bread together. Now the juice. Father, as we drink this juice together, we remember that it is by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross that you paid for our sin. Thank you, Father, for forgiving us all of our sins. Let's drink the cup together. Father, our faith and our hope is in you in what you accomplished for us with your death, your resurrection, and the promise of your return. Thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.